Good morning. Welcome to Grace. Y'all stand with us. Let's sing out together.
with me we'll spend just a moment in confession together let's pray god we come before you confessing that you are incredible that you are great and mighty god god we also confess that that we are messed up in a lot of ways lord you know that we don't have our stuff together that we need you that we are broken god even on our best days we need your grace And so, God, we come to you confessing that, admitting our need of you, and asking for you to fill us, to empower us, to strengthen us. God, help us to know you as a forgiving God and as a gracious God, as the God that walks with us through life, not because we deserve you, but because you're gracious, because you love us. And we thank you for that. And if we continue to worship, God, help us to take our hopes out of all the other things that we see as our saviors in this world and to trust only in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
God, we take to heart those words as we remember the things that you've done for us. We praise you for who you are, God. We thank you that we can come together as your children to show our love for you, God. Help us to continue to encourage each other. Help us to look at your word now, God, to live it out. It's in your, your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning again. Thank you. Never ceases to amaze me. You guys talk back. Nine o'clock doesn't say anything, so thank you. Um, thank you for being awake. Love that. Um, we're continuing this series called The Story of God, and so we're going to be looking today at Joshua chapter 6. If you have a Bible, you could flip open to Joshua 6. Um, if you want to follow along and you don't have a Bible, we have some kind of spread out under the chairs there, and we are in a page. 181 and those uh, black Bibles under the chairs. If you want to grab one of those, you're welcome to follow along there. In this Story of God series we've been doing, what we've been doing is trying to follow uh, the author of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 11, the author of Hebrews looks back at the entire Old Testament and says, hero after hero in the Old Testament was walking in dependence on God. This chapter is often called the Hall of Faith, right? Because it says all these great things they did They did not because they were such fantastic people. They did it by faith. That's this repeated phrase. It comes again and again. By faith. By faith. This great thing happened by faith. They were trusting in God. 
And we need to be very careful as modern people because there's this weird thing that's often taught in America in churches that faith is some kind of magical power and it's all about you. When, when that's not faith. Faith is about God. The God of the Bible is a big God. He is a gracious God, a, a saving God, a loving God. And faith is that you would walk in trust and dependence on Him. That's what faith means. Faith means you're trusting something. So faith is dependence on the saving, gracious, wonderful God of the Bible. And so all the heroes of the Old Testament were heroes, not because of how fantastic they were, but because God is really the hero of this book that we read, this book called the Bible. So we're calling the series The Story of God, and we've been going through looking at these different characters. This week we're going to look at the story of Joshua and see how in Joshua's life, again, we're really getting the story of God. Not about how incredible Joshua is, but how incredible God is. I want to, while you just stay in uh, Joshua 6, I'm just going to read real quick the little summary from Hebrews 11. Uh, It says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. And by faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient in the city of Jericho, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So it says this war, this conquest, these great things, this battle that they won, that was all, again, by faith. Not because Joshua was such a great general, but because of their dependence on God. Now, if you're a skeptic, uh, you might have questions about uh, the conquest and the wars in the Old Testament. So I just want to say a few things about that. Uh, And I think when we read Joshua, um, those skeptical 21st century questions we have are not the first thing on the author's mind when Joshua is written. So we're not going to really talk about that a whole lot. Uh, but I want to just throw it out there because, because you're skeptical 21st century Americans, right? So I want to at least answer it a little bit um, so we can address that. Uh, there's a website that I found. It's got about 40 or so pages on this question of war and conquest in the Old Testament. So if you're interested in that sort of thing, if you want to study that more, you could look on this. There's a lot of other places too, but I thought this was a good summary that kind of gives some research from history and also some biblical text. It's kind of collects it in one place. Uh, And the first thing I want to challenge you with, if you have a hard time with some of the war and the conquest that's gone on in the Bible, is to challenge you to study it, right? A lot of times what happens is you have some professor that throws that out to you, look at the war in the Old Testament, or, you know, look at this or look at that, and and we just kind of say, oh yeah, okay, and we walk away from our faith. And and we really don't try. We really don't dig in and study. So I really want to challenge you to study. Uh, Don't be intellectually lazy, but actually dig into your faith. Try to understand the whys and the whats, and and study that. Look into that. Um, God is not uh, scared of your questions, okay? He can handle your questions. Ask the questions, dig, and study. So the first thing is just dig into it. Understand it for yourself. Secondly, I want you to understand that uh, war and judgment and death and killing, all these things that happen in the Old Testament happen in the context overall of this bigger story. And this bigger story is that life is found in God, and as humans, we freely walked away from life, okay? So it's not an angry, arbitrary God saying, I don't like you, so I'm going to kill you, and I don't like you, so I'm going to kill you. That's not the story. The big story is we have life in God, and we've walked the other way. We've said, I prefer poison, okay? That's the story of the Bible. The story is human beings that said we'd rather have poison than have life. And that's the story played out again and again in the old Testament and in the New Testament as well. So it'd be kind of like saying that oxygen is arbitrary because it tells you to breathe it, right? That doesn't make sense. Oxygen gives us life. That's how we live. We need oxygen. And we don't think that oxygen is selfish because it wants us to breathe it all the time, okay? That's just how we work. And we need God. He, He gives us life. 
and he pleads with us, come to me for life. Isaiah 55 says, come to the waters, all you who are thirsty, come, buy and drink without money and without cost. He, he pleads with us to come to him. So that's the bigger context of all these things that go on in the Old Testament. The other thing that you should know about these people in Canaan, one thing, and you can find it in this uh, reading, is, is they were an especially despicable, evil people group that lived, kind of these, these uh, kind of uh, raiding war people that lived in this area were especially despicable, kind of even more despicable than, than other tribes in the areas. Uh, the other thing that you should understand is that they were given 500 years of warning, okay? God began speaking to Abraham in this area, he began uh, telling the stories of his grace and how he was redeeming the world through Abraham and through his people. And there were 500 years of warning given to the Canaanite people before the conquest began. And so just all of those things, I think, helps us to understand it wasn't just kind of random genocide and God just saying it's okay to just go kill people. That, that's not how it worked. And, and again, I would challenge you to dig in for, for yourself. I just wanted to give you some of those highlights. Uh, but as we look at Joshua, and as we read Joshua, again, we need to remember that this is the work of a God who has said, in me is found life, and I'm going to work through fragile, broken, messed up people to save the world and, and bring life back into a world of death. And that's what God is doing in the Bible. So let's read Joshua 6. All that is a, uh, by means of a long introduction there. Joshua 6, I'm going to read uh, 1 through 5, chapter 6, 1 through 5. And then we're going to read uh, verses 15 through 21 to kind of just give a, a feel for what happened here. It's the story of the conquest of the promised land. And again, I'm sorry, now I need to give you one more little backstory piece here. Um, they had been wandering after they'd been set free from slavery in Egypt. They'd been wandering in the desert because the first generation was so disobedient. God said, well, okay, then if, if you don't trust me, then you can just wander in the desert. Then your children will get to go into the promised land. So now this is the second generation going in with, with Joshua. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, see I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark. And they began to do this. Skip down to verse 15. They marched around it several times over several days. Once each day, verse 15 says, On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. So she was helping them out. She was a convert to their side. But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. 
So the people shouted, and all the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. So this is the story of God's miraculous conquest. It's a, it's a story that shows not that the army was so powerful, but that God was powerful. The way that they conquered the city was done on purpose by God in a way that would show that it was God that did it. That's why he did it. That's why he had the weird marching around the city thing. The whole purpose was to show that it's God saving. I want to remind you that the name Joshua and the name Jesus are the same name. Um, it's this Hebrew word Yeshua, and it means Yahweh saves. And so when you take Yeshua, translate it into English. I think my mic is messing up here. When you translate Yeshua into English, you get the word Joshua. That's how we translate it into English. When you translate it into Greek and then into Latin and then into English, it comes out Jesus. But that is the same name. That was Jesus' name. His name was Joshua, and it means Yahweh saves. So, so even the name here is to remind us that he's a saving God, that he's doing the saving. We're not saving ourselves, but God is the one saving. Let's pray and ask God to, to teach us more from the text here today. God, we ask that you would be with us. Um, Lord, you know that we can be distracted and we can have our mind on a lot of different things. And just pray that you would speak to us this morning. Help us to zero in and hear uh, what you want us to hear. Help us to understand the text and understand your desire for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Any of you seen the movie uh, Schindler, Schindler's List? Y'all seen the movie Schindler's List? Some of you are old enough to remember the movie. I was just realizing some people are too young to have seen it. Some of you were like in kindergarten when it came out or something. Um, Schindler's List was a movie about the Holocaust. Um, and it was about this guy named Oster Schindler that uh, was saving Jews during the Holocaust. And uh, he wasn't really that great of a guy. He was just a businessman that started to kind of stumble upon this ability to save people by buying them as slave laborers for his factory. So he would actually purchase them. And what happened is he began to even purchase ones that weren't really very good workers because he began to be interested in just saving them, right? His heart began to be soft and he began to want to help. He began to want to save people. But even in that movie, we recognize that he, even he, wasn't this incredible hero. Right? You see this move from kind of this hardened guy to the soft guy that's wanting to save people. But by the end of the movie, there's this really moving scene where he kind of breaks down and realizes that he didn't give everything. Right, That, that he could have given more. And, and when we see that in the movie, we probably recognize we, we're in the same boat. Right, There's things that we do to help people, but there's always more that we could do. But in the movie, he's having this uh, conversation with Itzhak, who was kind of the leader of the Jews. And Oscar says, I, I could have got more out. I could have got more. I don't know if I, I just, I could have got more. And he's beginning to kind of break down. And Itzhak says, Oscar, there are 1,100 people who are alive because of you. Look at them. And Oscar says, if I had made more money, I threw away so much money. Itzhak says, there will be generations because of what you did. But Oscar says, I didn't do enough. Itzhak says, you did so much. Oscar then looks at his car. He says, this car, Geth would have bought this car. Why did I keep the car? Ten people. Ten people right there. I could have bought ten more people if I sold the car. And this pen, he takes a gold pen off of his lapel. Two more people. This is gold. 
He would have given me two for it. At least one, one more person, a person for this. And he's sobbing. And he's saying over and over again, I could have gotten more. And he just kind of breaks down and he just falls on his knees sobbing and broken. Because he could have saved more. And I want to make the connection for you that the God of the Bible is not like us. And he's not like Oscar who says, I was still selfish. Yeah, maybe I helped people, but I was still selfish. I could have done more, right? The God of the Bible gave everything for us. He, he gives himself. He gives everything that he's got. He gives his best. And that's the God that we worship. So again, putting this in context, that is the God who saves, the God who gives everything, who holds nothing back for you. That is the scandal of our faith, that the God of the universe would give himself for you. And I want you to absorb that as we think through what God is doing, even back in the Old Testament in this culture that we don't always quite understand and with the war that's going on here. We don't quite get everything here. But at its essence, what we see is the story of this guy whose name means God saves, Yahweh saves. That's the business that he is in. He's a saving God. He's a gracious God. He's redeeming a people for himself. The first thing that I want to kind of point out in this story with this man whose name is Yahweh saves, God saves, is that he's filling big shoes. And I think this might give comfort to you. It gives comfort to me because sometimes I don't feel fully prepared for what God has called me to. And I think Joshua probably felt that way as well. If you'll flip back a few pages to, to Joshua chapter 1. If you'll flip back to Joshua chapter 1. We kind of see this baton pass from Moses, the greatest hero of the Old Testament. We see this baton pass now to Joshua, who is basically his assistant. Um, the, another way to translate that Hebrew word is sidekick. Um, so my first point is that God saves with sidekicks, okay? If you ever feel like you're kind of second best, or if you're kind of like an outsider, or if you weren't the top of your class, or you're not the hero that you wish that you could be, well, God works through people like that, and he works through Joshua. He wasn't the great Moses. He was Moses' assistant, Moses' sidekick. In uh, Joshua 1.1, it says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, again, that's Hebrew word for sidekick, uh, verse 2, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise and go over this Jordan, you and all the people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, Toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Now absorb that promise that he's giving to Joshua here. He's not saying, Joshua, you are such a stud. Look at your biceps. Look at that sword you have. You can do this, buddy. You're so big. You're so tough. No, he says, I will be with you, right? That's the promise that God gives him. God says, I will be with you just like I was with Moses, that stuttering guy that I used to save the people. I'm going to be with you also, and I'm going to empower you. I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Don't turn from the right hand to the left, you may have good success wherever you go. 
This reminds me a lot of Paul's instructions to Timothy. If you read First and Second Timothy again, Timothy trying to fill these big shoes and Paul empowering him and saying, don't be afraid, right? Don't be timid, but God is going to be with you and your word, uh, his word is going to be your strength. It's going to empower you and go with you as well. Verse 8, this is one of the memory verses that we memorize. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you should be careful to do everything according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. And then he reminds him again. Here it is. Repetition helps us learn, right? Repetition helps you learn. Verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Again, I mean, Joshua was a stud, right? I have to play down Joshua a little bit, talking about him being a sidekick. And I think he was intimidated by filling Moses' big shoes. Moses' big, supernatural, you know, amazing shoes. of just this hero of the Old Testament. God did amazing things through Moses. But we know Joshua was kind of a stud. He was, he was an experienced battle commander. He'd already won wars, right? So he, it wasn't like he was a wimp. Um, but he was a sidekick. And God empowers him not by how strong he is, but by saying he's going to be with him. Okay? And so I want to remind you that. So if you feel strong, you need to recognize that it's not your strength that's going to win the battle, right? It's God going with you. That's your strength. And if you feel weak, you can be encouraged that God still works through weak people. Even if you feel like a sidekick. I found a picture here for those of you that, those of you that think you're, you're tough may not connect with this as well. But those of you that think you're weak may feel like this sometimes. Picture of Robin, the boy wonder, right? Sometimes God may be calling you to great things, and you may feel like, you know, I'm just this goofball in, in a circus outfit, right? Like, I, I don't know what I'm doing here. Why does he get the cool, you know, dark suit and the mask, and I'm, I'm Robin? You know, how did, how did this happen? And sometimes you just may not feel up to the task that God is calling you to. And I encourage you that God works through weak people. God works through sidekicks. God works through assistants. He works through the strong and through the weak because it's, it's God that's doing the saving. It's God that's doing the working. All of his reassurances that he gives to Joshua are not based on how studly and how powerful Joshua is. His reassurances to Joshua to be strong and courageous are based on God going with him, saying, I'm giving you my word, and I'm giving you me. Again, that's the story of the Bible, that God saves. That's the name that he gave Joshua to remind him of this. He's saying, I save, and I can work through you no matter how weak you may feel. And this is not a promise that's just given to special people like Joshua in the Old Testament. This is a repeated promise given throughout the Bible, right? So you may be sitting in the audience going, yeah, that's great. God's going to be with Joshua, but not me, right? He's not going to be with John Smith just walking down the street. No, he's going to be with you. He's going to be with you too. And that's a promise he gives again and again. Matter of fact, in the end of the book of Hebrews, when we were looking at Hebrews last semester, we saw it in Hebrews 13 where he says, uh, don't be preoccupied with money and don't be worrying about those things. And then he quotes this same concept. Because God promises to all of you, God's people, that he will never leave you nor forsake you. He says, I will give you my word and I will also give you my presence. He talks about his presence quite a bit. In John 14, when Jesus is leaving the disciples, they're a little bit freaked out. He says, I'm going to die. I'm going to go away. But I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to give the comforter. The Spirit is going to come and be with you. So you're not going to be all on your own. You're not going to be orphans. But you're going to be comforted. And then that's kind of spun out a little more by 
the Apostle Paul in, in uh, Romans 8 and also in Galatians, where he says that that spirit that Jesus gives to us helps us to know God as Father. That spirit helps us to cry out, Abba, Father. So when he gives us the spirit, he's not leading us, he's not forsaking us, he's giving us the spirit so that we can walk with God as Father. Again, not walking, thinking we're under judgment because we've messed up so much, but knowing God as a forgiving God. As the God that, that when we stumble, he puts his arm around us and walks with us. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That is the promise of the gospel. That through Jesus taking our sin upon himself, we are adopted as his children. And nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Our body has gone through some really hard stuff the last couple of weeks. Uh, people losing babies and people dying and people with brain tumors and uh, just all kinds of stuff going on. In those situations, we can start to drift back to our old gods and we can start to think, well, maybe, maybe I need more money and that's going to secure me, right? Or maybe I need better relationships or maybe I need to make some lifestyle change. And God says, no, I'm the one that's going to save you. And things may be uncomfortable right now and things may be painful right now, but I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that's the, prom- that's the only thing that we can cling to when everything else is kind of falling apart. Just him. He's all we've got. And the Bible promises that he's enough. He will be with you. He also promises his word. In John 8, he says, uh, if you abide in my word, I'm going to read it so I don't quote it wrong here. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, right? He gives us his word to guide us, just like he promises to Joshua, and he gives us himself. He's the God that goes with us. He gives us his spirit. He walks with us. He is our Abba Father. We can call out to him. When things are hard, don't run away from him. Don't go the other direction. Don't think, oh man, I've, I've messed up. I've got to fix myself, and then I can come back to church, right? I've got to fix myself, and then I can look good again. No. When things are hard, that's when you run to your daddy and you say, God, help me. Hey, Abba Father, help me. Walk through this. The, the next thing that we see is, is I think both comforting and kind of scary at the same time is that God saves on his terms. Okay? God works through the week and he's with us. He will never leave or forsake you. But God is also God, right? He's sovereign. Kind of part of the definition of God is that he does his own thing. Now the Bible says again and again that his own thing is good, right? It's, it's grace. It's, it's mercy. It's compassion to us. But God is independent from us, right? He doesn't, he doesn't have to do whatever we say, but he is saving the world and he invites us into what he's doing. Does that make sense? I think it will make more sense when we see it here in the text. Flip back over to Joshua 5. We'll skip over some of what was going on. We, you know, They parted the Jordan to bring the people in. So, so the people were coming into the promised land, this next generation, and they gave them some of these miraculous signs to, to show them that God was with Joshua and God was with this new generation of Israelites. So when God saved them out of Israel uh, or out of Egypt uh, in Exodus, they parted the Red Sea. Right? Remember that story? That's a pretty famous one. Well, a less famous one is they now part the Jordan River to, to bring them into the promised land, to kind of show them, I'm, I'm still with you. I'm still this big saving God, right? So he shows them all of that. And then he does kind of this weird thing here in Joshua 5.1, right before they conquer the people in Jericho. Joshua 5.1, it says, As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel, until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. So, I mean, they're, they're ready, right? People are running away. The promised land is kind of emptying out. They are, 
They're ready to conquer this new land. They're ready to inherit the land that God's given to them. And then read verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. And I don't think flint knives are very sharp, guys. Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeah Um, And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who had come out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they'd come out of Egypt, right? So he was... Those people have been unfaithful. God says, I'm going I'm to give the land to the next generation. So the first generation is going to die off. Verse 5 says, So all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they'd come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that they would not let them see the land they had sworn. So basically one generation died off all of them circumcised. Forty years later, you know, a lot of them are not circumcised. These young 20-year-old soldiers had been born on the way, right? So, so God brings them into the promised land, miraculously parts the water, bring them into enemy, enemy territory, and all the enemies are terrified of them. And then God says, we're going to perform surgery, and you're going to lay around bleeding and recover for a couple of weeks, vulnerable, just sitting around. That's not the way that they deploy guys in the army now, is it? Like, like I'm thinking now, they usually try to take care of that sort of thing here before they send you off, right? So that when you're sent off, you're armed and ready. And they, they wait and try to, you know, heal you up here uh, when it's safe. They don't send you into enemy territory and then say, oh yeah, now let's, you know, start doing some surgery and start working on some other stuff. But for some reason, that's how God does it. And we see later on in the, in the passage then that they, they observed Passover together. And, and really, this is a a purifying thing, right? He's marking them as his people. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant. He's marking them as as his people, and then they're observing Passover together. He's showing them that he is their food and drink, just like we observe in communion, that he is their life. He's the one that sustains them. But isn't it weird that he would leave them vulnerable like this? Isn't that strange? And I think, I mean, the text doesn't really explain why he did it in that order, but I think he's showing them again that they have to remain dependent on him. That God is the one that's going to save. He's not going to save because they are so powerful. But he's going to bring them into enemy territory. And then he's going to tell them, okay, I'm going to do a little surgery. You're going to have to lay around bloody on the sidelines for a little while while you heal. And I know for some of you, you may feel like you're in that place right now. You may be thinking, God, why? I I thought you wanted me to do this and now I'm all beat up and bloody, right? Why, Why are you allowing this to happen? And we don't always understand the reasons why. And I'm not saying that this text explains all the reasons why. But we know that God is saving. And despite our circumstances, despite feeling beat up, feeling like we can't do it, feeling weak, feeling vulnerable, God can still work through us. And God often does it that way. He saves despite our condition. Sometimes on purpose, allowing us to to realize our weakness as he's going to save and and conquer. This is played out a little more in, in 513. If you skip down to 5. 13. So this is like now right before the conquest of Jericho. They've been healing. And it says 5.13, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no. But I'm, that's not the good answer, right? No. But I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have time. 
other translations say neither, right? Or there's other ways that that's played out in the translations. Basically, he's, he's saying, I'm not really on your side. I'm not really on your enemy's side. I'm independent. I'm the commander of the Lord's army. Most would believe that this is like a pre-incarnate vision of Jesus, right? We have these, these appearances of a messenger of Yahweh that speaks as Yahweh, that speaks as God in a human form. And most theologians assume that this is like Jesus in an early appearance, kind of before he had this human body as, as Jesus. And so he's, he's speaking now as God on earth, saying, I'm the commander of the Lord's army. And so what we understand again, that Joshua's name is being played out, that God is the one that's going to save. And we have to align ourselves with him. We have to recognize who the real commander is, right? I, I've got a picture here of, of rank. Those of you that are military, um, I think this is a high rank, right? Is this a high rank? This is four stars. There may be more. Are there, is there five? Can you have five? I think you can have five, maybe. But uh, anyway, that's really high, right? Whatever it is, that's a high rank. That's some kind of general, an important person. And if you're in the military, everybody kind of know you know where you stand based on the other person's rank and your rank, right? You know if you are to subordinate or you know if you're in charge of that person or, or however that plays out. And what we have to do as humans is recognize that we are always subordinate to the commander, right? To the ultimate commander, that God is in charge. That he saves and he's working his grace and he's compassionate, but he's doing these things on his terms that he is in charge and we're serving him. And again, that's hard for 21st century Americans because we tend to think of ourselves as our own gods, as our own kings and queens over our own little domain and that we're in charge and when things don't go the way we want them to, it's pretty frustrating because we think that we get to tell people what to do or we get to at least control our little corner of the world. We have to be reminded again and again that he's in charge, that he's the commander and that we serve him and he's reminding Joshua of that. He said, no, I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. So Joshua was put in his proper place. So Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped. And said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This is why we believe this is God appearing, because it says Joshua worshipped. And then he's telling him to take off his sandals because it's holy ground. Kind of like when... God appeared in the burning bush to Moses, right? Um, y'all may have noticed that sometimes our worship leaders will remove their shoes when they're leading worship, and this is kind of a similar action. People have different things, different ways that they express physically worship, right? In the Bible, we see bowing. We see hands raised uh, in prayer. We see people removing their shoes as a sign of submission. These are all ways that we show bodily that we are worshiping one greater than us, that we are honoring this God. And that's what Joshua does. And this is all to help Joshua get his head on straight, right, before he leads the army into this victory over Jericho. He has to understand that he's not really the commander. His name is God saves, and God has to continue to remind him, just as he has to continue to remind us. Yes, he wants to work through us, but he wants to remind us that he's the one doing the saving. And so then in Joshua 6.1, it says, Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out, and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. Again, that reminder that it's God that gives the victory. He's the one doing the work. The last thing I want us to look at when we saw this uh, saving of, uh, of, or we see the saving of Rahab in the conquest of Jericho, 
we understand that God is the kind of God that saves people who trust. Because previously, and we didn't read all this because we're trying to kind of cover multiple chapters here at once, uh, spies went in and Rahab helped them. Rahab was saying, we, we trust your God, we know your God is the real God, and, and I'll help you if you'll save me and my family. And we see that as a theme again and again, that God's not just about a certain race. God in the Old Testament was working through this race of people, through this tribe, but he was always bringing in all the nations into this nation. He was always allowing others to assimilate in. He wasn't just about uh, the physical descendants of Abraham, but he was always about all the nations. And if you read the Old Testament carefully, you know that he's always warning them not to assimilate with those, old, those other cultures and start worshiping their gods. But he was always allowing them to assimilate into Israel, to become Israelites. He's always been about all the nations. It wasn't like some radical change in the New Testament where all of a sudden now, now God cares about the nations. And he didn't before. No, he always did. He was always inviting the other nations in. And Rahab is another evidence of that, someone that he saves, who trusts him, right? Uh, she's a part of this despicable culture that he's telling them to wipe out, but she trusts him, and so she comes in. Uh, and 622, if you skip down kind of the end of the section that we read earlier about the conquest of Jericho, it says in 22, but the two men who had spied out the land, to them Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her, just as you swore to her. So the young man who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought out all of her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. We see God working kind of through families like this. God saves us and then God brings along other people that we know and love. He brings our friends and he brings our family. And that's often how God works in the scriptures. As he's saving people, he works through networks of people often. He saves Rahab who puts her trust in him and then the rest of her family gets saved as well. And we see this again and again in the New Testament. We see whole households being saved in the book of Acts. And this is often how God works. It's not a guarantee, but this is often how God works. He, he works through groups of people. He saves people, and the concept is that he saves those ultimately who trust, right? Those who trust him, those who say, I know that you're the real God of the universe. Again, he's not arbitrary, but he's the source of life. And as we entrust ourselves to him, we find life in him. We find hope and joy in him. I had a picture here to give you that, that feeling of salvation. Oh, maybe this is a stretch, but just the other day, I, I have to admit, sometimes I, I have sped, okay? And an officer of the law pulled me over the other day, and I knew that I had sped. I knew I was guilty, right? I knew that I didn't deserve freedom. Um, I knew that I deserved the ticket. And he gave me those wonderful words, I'm giving you a warning. You ever heard that? <laughs> Any of you ever got that right? Most of y'all are unlucky. You never get warnings. I, I actually got a warning. And, oh, set, that weight that comes off of you, right? Like, oh, okay. Thank you, thank you, right? And, and you're set free. And this is, this is what God does all the time. Because we are all guilty. Again, it's not, it's not just Rahab's guilty he sets her free because she trusts in him. The whole people of Israel are a, an entire people that are all guilty. All of us, God's people, we're guilty, right? We're not somehow better than other people because we're here in this church or because we do religious things. We're, we're saved because we trust in God. God saves people who trust in him. And that's the story that we've been seeing again and again in the Story of God series. What the author of Hebrews was trying to point out in Hebrews 11, that all the Old Testament characters, just like everybody in the New Testament, walks in dependence on God. 
walks in faith, walks in trust. And God saves us because he's a saving God. Because he loves us. Because he's gracious. It's not because you're better than other people. We look at a character like Rahab the harlot, the prostitute, and that really kind of helps us to see it, right? Because somehow, churchy, religious people, we, we often fall into this way of thinking that we don't really say out loud, but we think, well, we're not quite as bad as those other people, right? It's like, God saved me because I don't watch R-rated movies very often. I don't say very many bad words, so I'm, I'm saved, right? I'm a good person. I, I go to church so God saves me because I'm one of the good people. But then there's those, other, those bad people out there. And he doesn't really save them because they're bad. But that's not really how the Bible plays it out. The Bible says we're all bad. Whether you're this kind of bad or that kind of bad or whatever you do, we're all, we all have hearts that stray from God. And he's gracious. And if we trust him, he will forgive us. He will cleanse us. He will restore us. He gives us life. I want to just remind you one more time, making that connection, Oscar Schindler came to the end of his life and felt broken. Felt like a loser, right? Because he could have saved more. And I want to encourage you, when you are in those moments, right? When you recognize the guilt, the weight on your life of how you've blown it, how you've messed up, how you haven't done enough, remember that you serve a God who gave himself completely for you. There was nothing more he could have done. He did everything. He gave his all. He gave his best, and that is the God that we serve, to give us freedom, right? Not to make us feel guilty, not to make us feel like losers, but God is a saving God, and as, as we trust that, as we believe that, that he loves us, that he is our daddy that restores us and gives us life, as we trust that, then that sets us free to not be so obsessed about ourselves, to begin to be able to give ourselves away to others, to begin to be able to save and to help and to love those outside of ourselves. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you are the God who saves. Thank you for reminding us of that, even in just the name of Joshua and of Jesus, that you save. God, help us to be a, to be a part of what you're doing in the world. Help us to be neighbors that love well. Help us to be those that work with others in kindness and grace and to share your mercy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.